0: pull back the curtain, so to speak, to reveal realities that are always there, but that are out of our sight or out of our conscious awareness. Now, I'm not a big Harry Potter guy. Sorry for those of you who are, but I don't know. I just, it's not my thing. But I was just remembering this morning, in one of the Harry Potter movies, they're on like a train platform, and at least Harry and some others are running, and they have to find a certain pillar, is it? And And, like, the pillar somehow opens, and they go, see, I don't get that kind of stuff. But anyway, uh, something like that is happening in our readings today, that there is a reality that is always there, but that is unseen to us. Uh, Elijah seeing God in the presence of this, you know, chariot and uh, horses, Uh, the psalmist, saying that God sort of calls the whole earth together to sort of sit in judgment over his covenant people. Paul says that uh, sometimes for some people that there's a veil that separates them from seeing Jesus. And then, of course, we have the, one of the most amazing stories in all of the Gospels where Jesus is transformed. He's metamorphosized the Greek text says, right in front of their face. He's transformed. And they see a reality that's always there. It's just not always seen and therefore not always dealt with and uh, not always interacted with. So here we are today. These are our last readings for this year in Epiphany. And it made me begin to wonder what's the proper response to Epiphany? What's the proper response to Revelation? What's the proper response to the manifestation of God to us, the Gentiles? And I think it's something like this clear and complete commitment to Jesus as the ultimate sovereign Lord. That's the only reasonable response. To what we've read for seven weeks. As repeatedly, we've seen how God is revealing himself. And I think that commitment to Jesus as his apprentice, as his disciple, commitment to his ultimate and supreme lordship, when done in humility, is also a key to evangelism today. You remember that we've been reading these epiphany lessons the last few weeks, trying to think, how is it that we get in on the manifestation of himself that God is continuing to do in the world. And I think what we can say in this, our last week, is that real passionate commitment to Jesus, actually making him our supreme Lord, is one of the best, most potent forms of evangelism today. I mean, if you just stop for a second and ask yourself, why do Buddhists get a pass I mean, religion is increasingly in bad favor today. And, of course, Christianity gets sort of beat up the most, but, you know, so does Islam. But, you know, Buddhism seems to get a pass. And I think I know why. I mean, I've just heard enough about it. I've interviewed enough people. I've thought about it enough. I think I know why. In the average Buddhist, people see them practicing their religion. And most of the time, they see them actually becoming sort of more peaceful, you know, Buddhists are known as compassionate, you know, Buddhists are known as people who are at rest. Well, why? Because they're practicing their religion. And I think for us, when we actually practice being apprentices to Jesus, where we actually practice being his student or his disciple, there's an evangelistic affect to that. So, I want us to just think this morning of, I just sort of arbitrarily did this, some four-dimensions of this commitment to Jesus as the ultimate Supreme Lord and its evangelistic affect. So the first one, I think there's an intellectual dimension. I don't think we can say we're converted if our mind remains unconverted. As long as we remain in sort of the cultural posture of my mind matters, my mind is most supreme, my perspective on things, the context in which my mind exists, and the language through which my mind expresses itself is the most important thing, then we remain unconverted. A big part of making Jesus the supreme Lord of our life is the submission of our mind to him. When we read the story of Mary and Martha, we sometimes tend to focus on Martha and her error, whatever that might have been, but often miss Mary, where? Sitting at the feet of Jesus as his apprentice, sitting precisely where a disciple or a student sits and listening to him. You know, Jesus in Matthew 11 gives us two really important invitations, The first invitation is, you know, that invitation to come to me, you know, get away with me. I'll show you how to recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Like, you know, all you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. And we all hear that and go, yeah, that's my Jesus. And of course it is. It's fantastic. But listen to the next invitation take my yoke upon you. It's not a command. That's an invitation. And I think the two are connected. Take my yoke upon you. Well, you can picture a yoke probably, right? A beam that's curved and goes over two oxen and wooden hoops that, you know, kind of go over their chest and neck. You picture a yoke, right? Well, for much of the Old Testament, Torah is thought of as a yoke. Here's Torah. Here's my life and our life as the community of Israel. And we yoke ourselves to the Torah. And the Torah then, it it disciplines us in the sense of we disciple ourselves to it. It disciples us. We apprentice ourselves to this revelation of God in the Torah, in the speaking of God to his people. So everybody knows what Jesus is saying when he says this. So it's it's kind of a, it's a bit of a, um, uh, it's a bit of a controversial thing because he says, take my yoke upon you. But then he says, I love the way Eugene gets this in the message. So picturing a, picture a yoke now. Got that in your head? Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. As you walk with me, as you pick up my gait, as you pick up my pacing, as you kind of pick up my posture, you're going to learn what I experience, and that is I experience just being the revelation of God on earth. And there's there's no works. There's nothing meritorious about this. I'm not trying to earn anything. I want you to experience as you yoke yourself with me, as you put your head in that thing, and you actually take this upon you, that you'll experience the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you, Jesus is saying. If you'll keep company with me, if you'll put your head in there the way I've put my head in there, if you'll keep company with me, you'll actually learn to live freely and lightly. So Jesus invites us. If we're going to say that we're converted and that we're apprentices, this first means an intellectual conversion. Conversion. Paul said, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ as Lord. And that that somehow gets veiled, meaning that people are looking and going all the wrong ways and they refuse to give Jesus any serious attention. You know, Paul's saying something like, you know, they only have eyes for sort of the fashionable gods of today so that Satan has blinded them by things that allure us like money or power or pleasure or whatever, and that these things hide the truth. They don't allow us to see that you can actually walk into that pillar and experience a different reality, that things that are always there aren't always seen by us. Now, you, you probably know that just across the freeway here, there's a uh, Starbucks and a little shopping center, and I used to go there a lot, except for you can never find a parking space. Am I right? Never. And so I quit telling people I would meet them there, and then they changed it to 15 minutes. How are you supposed to have a meeting with somebody in 15 minutes, right? So I never go there, or at least I never park there, and I I don't go there that much. So the other day, I drive in off of Newport Boulevard, and I turn in, and I see somebody's about to back out their car. I think, great, it's my lucky day. And I don't know what, I can't remember if it was a guy or a girl, but whatever they were doing, you know, it took them a few minutes to back out, a few seconds to back out. I don't know, it could have been 60 to 90 seconds. It was a bit of time. When you're waiting for a parking space, 90 seconds, you know, <laughs> that's a long time. But I'm sitting there waiting patiently, and then this girl comes in off of whatever that is, fair, or I can't remember what it's called there. Uh, I don't know. So they, they, she drives in, and she swoops right around, like going fast, and swoops right into the parking lot. I'm parking space, and I just need to tell you, I don't usually talk to other drivers. Like, I'm not sure I've ever talked to another driver in my life, and I wasn't like really angry. I was like stunned. Like, did that just really happen? And so I don't know that I've ever done this before in my life, and I wasn't I wasn't at all angry. But she got out of her car, and I said, "You didn't see me sitting here waiting for that?" And she said, "Oh no." I've been sitting on the other side of that car waiting for five minutes. She was sitting somewhere where I couldn't see her. She was there way before me, waiting for that same space. But I was blinded to what was real. Good thing I wasn't angry. <laughs> and good thing that I don't normally use funny hand signals. I was, I was just perplexed, like, How did that just happen? She had to have seen me sitting here. She didn't. And Paul's saying that's the kind of thing that goes on all the time. And it's why it requires conversion on our part to see what's real. So first, there's an intellectual conversion. Second, I think there's a moral uh, conversion that has to happen. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will do what I have said. Now for most Protestants, Hearing the word do makes us nervous, especially if we tend to be at all Calvinistic. They truly tremble at the word do. But Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I have said. You will obey my commands. Why? Come on, I know it's Sunday morning, but think with me. Why? If you love me, you obey my commands. Why is that okay? Why is that not Armenian? Why is that not the resurrection of Pelagius, for all of you who know a little church history? Why is this something other than that? Because if you yoke yourself with Jesus, you'll find the free and easy light. Life, I mean. He said my commands aren't burdensome. Yoke yourself with me and you'll discover humanity as it was meant to be. So we read in the psalm this morning how the mighty one, the God, the Lord of the earth, he summons heaven and the sun and the moon to judge his people, which just simply means to make what is hidden come to light, to make what is a bit mussed up, discreet, and clear. And so gather to me, look at, your, look at your psalm, this consecrated people, these people who have been set aside, who have seen the light, who have put their head in the yoke. They've made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Gather them together because I want to show them what's real. So in their case, you know, God would have just been showing them that you're not behaving as people of the covenant. Maybe in our case, you know, here in 2012, when it comes to a moral conversion that makes Jesus the supreme Lord of our life We might have to think through all the issues surrounding moral and ethical relativism that's all about us. Is there something that's really real? Is there a way of viewing human economics and human politics and human sexuality? Is there a way of viewing those things that are actually true? Or do we only have our perspective on them? And God might say, I summon heaven and earth. I summon the sun and the moon and the stars. And they're going to become like this giant courtroom And I'll just show you. Remember, whenever you see the word judge, it doesn't always mean or mostly mean to spank or to punish or to imprison or something. It has a sense of making clear, of putting to rights. And this is what God's after. So I think first there's an intellectual conversion, second a moral conversion, and third a vocational conversion. And what I mean by that is that every person, according to the Bible, is called to a life of service. Everybody. It doesn't matter what we get a paycheck for, our calling, our vocation, is to live for the sake of others. And this doesn't mean just ordained ministry. Actually, I think you might have a better chance serving the world in some other job. Seriously. School teachers bankers, cops, firemen, nurses, doctors. We could go on and on. I think you could actually have a better shot at fulfilling your vocation somewhere outside of ordained ministry. Ordained ministry can get kind of closeted, and you have to work at actually being a normal person and uh, having some sort of normal life. And so what happens, what we see in this story in 2 Kings is that Elisha gets this. Elisha gets that God's up to something. He's seen what God's been up to in Elijah. And so when he says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, he's not being um, like greedy or haughty. He's saying something like this. If I could have it my way, God, I would love to see Elijah's life repeated in mine. I want to be a holy man just like him, only could we go for double. That's what's really happening. He's seeing the work of God in somebody. He's seeing somebody who has lived out a whole life vocation before God. He's seen the power of it and the affect of it, and he wants to be in on it. He wants to be a participant. He wants to be the cooperative friend of God. He wants to do the things he saw Elijah doing. Our text in Corinthians this morning What's going through Paul's mind here is that the early Christians, um, one, of the, one of the senses of Lord, just like in England today, one of the senses of Lord is owner. So you sometimes hear in England talked about is they're landed. They, they own things. Well, the early apostles, the early followers of Jesus, they thought of themselves in that way that Jesus owns me, and he's now sending me into my actual life as I presently experience it. So picture your actual life with its rhythms and routines, your present actual life. And the early followers of Jesus thought, that's the soil in which I execute my vocation. And then, of course, Jesus tells us what this is like in John 13 in the upper room. He said to his disciples, his first friends, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. for That is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have... Washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet, for I have set you an example. And that's the vocation we're all called to, to be servants of God in the world, metaphorically washing the feet of the world. Fourth, I think there's a social and political um, conversion that needs to happen, and that is to say that Jesus is Lord is a public reality. And as soon as we say, Jesus, you are my supreme Lord, then that means we have social responsibilities in his name. And it basically requires a choice. And this was actually a life and death choice for Jesus' first friends. You either could say, Caesar is Lord, or you could say, Jesus is Lord. And when those early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, they were literally taking their life into their own hands and wondering, what would happen with us? And of course, the answer to this question, whether Jesus is Lord or the emperor is Lord, it always makes various people nervous, depending on where you are. Because in every every era of human history, there's been a, a tendency to the deification of the state to nations or to tribes or whatever happened to be, you know, any way that human beings have grouped themselves together over the millennia, there's been a tendency or a temptation to deify that. So people will do anything to protect their tribe, their state, their nation. There's a kind of deification of that. And by the way, this happens on both the left and the right. I'm not saying this as a Republican who's against big government. That's not my point here. Totalitarianism throughout the history of of mankind has existed on both the right and they're equally evil. This is not a left-right thing. This is a human thing where we have to get to the place where we respect the state, but we don't worship it. There's no uncritical acceptance of the state because Jesus is Lord. This is my deepest and most profound personal commitment So I worship Jesus, I obey Jesus, and in that Pauline sense, I see myself as owned by Jesus. I am not my own. I am bought with a price, and I am therefore given over to him. So in the transfiguration, what we see in this story that I think is important for thinking through lordship is that transfiguration is like looking through a microscope for the first time. Any of you who teach elementary school or science or something, you, you know this, where you put a little speck of something between two pieces of glass, and the little fourth graders go, big deal. And then they move their eyes, and they look for the first time at a reality that they had no clue existed. And then what happens, all you teachers? Can you get them away from the microscope? No, because they've seen something that's true and real. Their mind is blown. Or the first time somebody looks through a telescope and realizes that what's out there has a reality to it that I never knew existed. And so the transfiguration brings before us and defines the deepest of all reality. It gives significance to everything. It opens our eyes in a new way that Jesus really is the Messiah, in the, and if we were to be, if we were doing a Bible study this morning instead of, of, of a sermon and looking at the context, the story in which this story of the transfiguration happens, what's going on is something like this. They're kind of beginning to groove on Jesus a little bit. He's amazing. Nobody's ever heard him teach like this. He does stunning miracles over nature and healing and drives out demons. It's amazing. And then he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And they say, This doesn't fit the pattern. This doesn't work. And then Jesus says to three of his best permission givers, opinion makers, three of the leaders of his posse, he takes James and John and Peter and says, come with me. And he goes up on this mountain. And suddenly they see, suddenly they see that the path to the kind of glory they see in the transfiguration goes through the cross. The conversion always implies little deaths. I have to die to that part of my mind that wants to be a self apart from Christ. I have to die to that part of moral relativism that I like because it allows me to kind of just screw around a little bit with sin. I have to die to that part of my mind that doesn't like making Jesus the supreme Lord of my life when it comes to vocation, where I want to kind of do my own thing because I'm tired of what I'm doing. You just go on and on and on, and the transfiguration shows us that yes, that glory exists, it always exists. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He he had glory before he died. We tend to glorify him for his death, but as the second person of the Trinity, he had glory before he ever showed up on earth, and he will have it forever. But the path for that for him went through the cross, a kind of death to himself. And John is, or excuse me, Mark is wanting the disciples to see and us to see that this is what happens, that Jesus is the ultimate player in history. He's greater than Moses, representing the law. He's greater than Elijah, representing the prophets. And he is fulfilling and continuing what God was doing in them. You can trust him. You can follow him. You really can make him Lord of your life, even when, even when conversion to him seems to put demands on your life that you don't get or you're not sure you can do that if you yoke yourself with him, he's not going to lay something heavy or ill-fitty or burdensome on you. But rather, he said, if you'll keep company with me, if you'll just learn to walk with me, you'll experience unforced rhythms of grace. You'll learn to live life as God intended humanity to live life, freely and lightly. Well, there's a lot of drama in those stories this morning. But in the story of the transfiguration at the end, it tells us that they came down the mountain. That they had this amazing mountaintop experience, but they had to come down the mountain. And so as we stop here now for our little time of meditating on what these readings have said to us, I just want you to think that the conversion happens in real life. They came down the mountain to the challenges and activities of normal life. That after the epiphany comes seeing all of life in a new way intellectually, morally, vocationally, social, politically. And as we pivot now to Lent next week, as we move to this quiet time, I want to invite you just to think for a moment about yourself, your own conversion to Christ presently, your own sense of him being the ultimate, supreme Lord of your life, and just wonder, just stop and wonder in your heart for a moment Are there areas of your followership of Jesus for the sake of others that need some attention? This might be a nice pivot for you into Lent. Are there intellectual things, moral things, vocational things, social or political things? The practices of Lent that we'll be introducing you to over the next few weeks, they address our need for integrity, that is for integration under the Lordship of Christ. For when Christ is really Lord, we are whole.